Hello, I'm Stuart Childs and you're welcome to the Dairy Age, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you the latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. This week we have something a little bit different but no less interesting on the podcast. George Ramsbottom, dairy specialist in Chagas Oak Park, is just back from a trip to Kenya and gives us some insights into what he saw. But before he spoke about that, I asked George to explain why he was in Kenya in the first place. A change of direction for me in a way, uh, about a year ago, or a little longer than a year ago, a guy called Paul Maher who works with Chagas is, he's our international relations person. And we Chagas has an extensive um, kind of portfolio of activities going on in Africa. It's not something I'd know a travel lot about myself, Stuart, but I, I usually have a, a master's degree or a PhD degree student working with me all the time, or I become the supervising their um their careers so um i happen to have a guy called michael o'loughlin working with us and michael is a master's degree student and myself and jim kinsella from ucd some of you know jim he's a kikenny man uh he's professor of extension in ucd and myself and jim are his co-supervisors and we went over to see him he's evaluating a project uh an agricultural advisory project in uh in kenya uh, and we, we went over to get a better understanding of what he's actually doing over there. So when we're helping him to complete his thesis uh, in the next number of months, that we'd have a better understanding of what's going on in the study area. And uh, over the course of a week or so, we visited discussion groups. We visited lead and follower farmers. They're basically, uh, lead farmers are like monitor farmers and follower farmers are farmers who visit those farms. And we visited the, the Franciscan run Agricultural College at Baraka up in the Kenyan Highlands. I suppose just before we get into the nitty gritty of it, the project is the, the extension project that Michael O'Loughlin is evaluating is uh, led by the Development Promoter Charity. It's a charity that works in a rural area close to Nakuru in central Kenya. And the project is led by um, a guy called James Hennessy. He's, he's a great guy. So he has savings groups he has agricultural advisory work and he has health centers all badly needed in the region and james is a brother of a lady that works with chagas a senior research officer called deirdre hennessy some of you will know deirdre there are cork people she's she's uh, working in moor park as a researcher down there and she's a really good lady and he's uh, cut up the same cloth as her. He's, a, he's a great guy so we had a very interesting visit there one of the things that's, that struck me nearly as soon as we arrived into uh, Nairobi Airport is how high the country is. So when we arrived in, we were at 1,500 metres above sea level, or 1,550 metres. Nakuru, where we were based, is 1,800 metres. And we went up to Baraka College on a Friday. We arrived in on a Saturday night. The following Friday, we went up to Baraka Agricultural College, the Franciscan-owned college up in the Highlands. And that was at 2,600 metres above sea level. So you're talking, you know, very high uh, country altogether. And you were saying, George, that that was, um, it was a bit difficult to breathe even. At that, and so, well, ca- ca- catch your breath, kind of. I, I put my hands up and say, I'm not the fish of the people, but my God, walking at 2,600 metres for me, I was out of breath. So <laughs> I have to tell you now what it was like. Um, what, what it amazed you about the, the soils, as a kind of an agriculturist or a farmer myself, is how good the soil is. It's beautiful soils, absolutely gorgeous soils everywhere. 
no trouble with the quality of the soil. The, the problem with the soil is the lack of water. And, uh, you know, water is, is that driven by just the climate or is it also by the, the actual topography of the of the site, we'll say, at the height that they're at? Yeah, even even within even within the Nakuru, the city we were staying in, it's a city about the same size as Cork. And we were going out then every day to kind of the Ronga, Rongai area outside it. So there's a, there's a, you can see a climatic differences even there. There was a lot more rain falling. It rained most evenings in Nakuru, and they got much less rain out in in, in the Rongai region that we were we were going out to, to visit. Um, and that's within you know 30, 30, 30 miles or so of each other. Uh, there seem to be quite big differences between the amount of water that they were getting in the two different areas. Okay, so George, I suppose um, I was just Michael O'Loughlin happens to be John O'Loughlin's brother as well, who people will be familiar with from the Grass Ten events and so forth. There um, and their involvement through Grassland Agro and John and James's father obviously worked with ourselves here in Chagas in the Heavy Soils program down through the years as well. John was just saying the other day on on one of their own podcasts, I happened to hear him saying about it, that you were actually out visiting Michael, but he was referencing the very good work that was done by the likes of Boher and so forth in the past uh, in terms of people supplying stock to go out to, to Central Africa and so forth. The the issues that they, I suppose, the, the kind of the things that we take for granted uh, were problems, became problems with those stock, we'll say. So cows went out there, obviously they calved maybe if they were in calf on the way out, which was probably the the, the main type of stock that went out there uh, in calf heifers. Um, but then the, the issues were like getting these cows back in calf, um, what they were being fed, etc. So you saw a lot of different things, I suppose. As I said, we take an awful lot for granted. We do a lot of talking, you and I, about the the finer details of of dairy farming in Ireland. Like, but this is this is very different territory to what you're used to on a day to day basis. Ash, look, it's it's a completely different um, scenario altogether. What we're used, and I was kind of well ready for it because I'd be talking quite often to Michael, our student, before I went out and understood from him what was going on. So basically, look at the soils are quite dry because of the, the kind of the way the rain falls. So you get warm temperatures, and then you get seasonal rainfalls. So you know yourself if you've got a bit of a drought here, what would happen in terms of grass quality? So th- they grow a completely different range of forages for the cows. It's not rye grass really. There, there's a lot of cut and carry going on. That means they're they're physically going into fields and cutting material then to bring into the cows and feed them in a kind of fairly basic uh, kind of uh, mangers in, in sheds. Um, and the quality of the feed is, has to be seen to be believed. It's, it's quite poor. So a good milk yield, as a result of that, a good milk yield would be around 15 litres of milk when a cow is at her peak. Whereas at home, the same cows or similar cows would be probably delivering 25 or 30 litres. <clears throat> so quality is, is an issue. So a lot of the time, people are living kind of pretty hand-to-mouth. Um, the typical holding is about two hectares, most of its own, some of it's leased in. And George, is it... Um, about five acres, yeah. Is it down to the fact that uh, the, the type of stuff that they are growing, or sh- should they be looking at like what we're doing here, or would rye grass just be an on-runner in the area because of the, dr- the dryness of it? It's, it's really too dry. Where, where we were based, it's, it's just too dry to grow rye grass or to keep it keep it growing. So they're growing a variety of crops, but two or three of the, the big crops that they're growing would be think, that they're trying to get going is stuff like napier grass. So napier grass is effectively a form of elephant grass. It's a kind of a it's more more of a forage one than the elephant grass we grew at home um, 
for biofuel the few years ago. But what they're trying to, to grow it for, but I'm looking at it, I'd say they're, they're probably harvesting it a bit on the strong side and they need to go in a bit earlier and cut it more frequently because it's, it's quite a good grass, it's, has a huge yield potential, um, but it, and it's also drought resistant. So if it was cut at the right stage, I, I'd say they get a lot more, more production out of it. I say they're a bit like ourselves in that they can be a bit uh, conservative about when they harvest things and they're always worried about drought coming and they're afraid to cut it. I'd say they could take a chance on it and just go in a bit earlier, harvest it more frequently, and uh, they'd get better production from it. But napier grass on its own really wouldn't be sufficient to feed the cows because it seems to be kind of fairly low protein content. So they're growing a variety of crops then that are higher quality and higher protein content to balance the napier grass, which would be kind of your, your core forage. So they're growing things like sorghum. I'd never seen sorghum before. Sorghum is a bit like maize silage, only it's it's kind of a finer head on it, uh, a lot more seed in the head. And it, it'll regrow, unlike maize silage, it'll regrow when it's cut as well. So if you cut it, it'll grow back, you'll get a second and, and sometimes a third crop off it as well, uh, with le- obviously with lesser yields uh, each time they grow it. So, um, for example, the, the napier grass can, has the potential to yield about 25 tonnes of dry matter per hectare, and the sorghum will, will yield up to around 15 tonnes of dry matter per hectare. But you wouldn't need to grow big quantities of sorghum uh, to balance out the the um, napier grass that they're growing. So they're also growing a crop called lucerne because, like sorghum, it's it's actually higher protein, and it's a very good um, it's a very good complement to the to the napier grass. Napier grass. Yeah. And as well, the other crop that they grow a lot of is they grow a lot of maize. So around uh, Nakuru and up to Rongai, where we were for most of the time. The, they're harvesting the maize at the moment. But unlike in Ireland, while they're harvesting it, they're actually they're, they're milling or chopping up the stover and feeding it to the cows. But they've already taken the cob out of it. The cob has matured at this stage. They're taking the cob out of it. They're drying it out in sheets in the yards around the houses. And it's being used to feed the family. Okay, so they're taking the cob for the, the, the themselves and the, and the remainder is going to the stock. So if you think about stover gone withered and dry in Ireland uh, with no cob in it, you can imagine what the quality of that feed is like for the cows. So mm-hmm. it's enough to keep them uh, alive, but it's not enough to make them the cows productive. In terms of genetics then, George, um, we'll say, as I said there, John O'Loughlin was talking about the, the concept of actually getting some of these animals back in calf and so forth when they went out there originally. Um, they, I suppose the big problem is there the, the economies of scale that we talk about. If you've only one cow, it's very hard to pick her up when she's in heat. Um, so what were they doing in relation to that and how were they actually getting them in calf? Only enough, Stuart. Um, well, first of all, herd size is about two to three cows on average. So it's, it's a pretty small herd of cows that they're actually, uh, each farm has. Two things never really cropped up as being issues, Stuart. The first of them was mastitis. Because milk yield is so low, they said, oh, mastitis isn't something we have a problem with. It's a problem on the real um, uh, industrial farms where they're milking 25 and 30 litres. But on the farms that are milking 10 and 15 litres at peak and averaging maybe three or four litres uh, per cow per day, mastitis isn't a challenge. And the other one that didn't seem to have any concept of it being a challenge was, was heat. They didn't seem to have any trouble. I say because the cows are yielding pr- pretty little milk, um, the the uh, heat expression or heat detection doesn't seem to be a big challenge. But I did a back calculation, Stuart, on to work out the number of days in milk per annum for the cows, and I, I reckon the cows are in milk for no more than two hundred days in every year. 
So um, whether it's because they, of the low milk yield and drying off early or because they're having trouble getting the back and calf, I don't know. But I suspect it's more to do with, to do with the quality of feed and the duration of the lactation. It's pretty short. So, but they don't seem to have an issue with, with a conception rate at the same time, Stuart. And are they calving at the same time every year? Then George will say, or are they kind of like... But, There's no like, records anywhere, Stuart. So okay. I suspect they're not. I, I suspect they can't be, Stuart. Just but they but they're somewhat be. similar to ourselves in terms of trying to calve in order to align themselves with their feed supplies. No, there's no, there's no, um, there was no emphasis on when the cow was calved because okay. the diet is cut and carry all the year round. And and there's no no restriction in terms of it. It kind of is growing all year round. So is it? I, there's go, there's going to be dry periods when there's yeah. a lot of cut and carry going on, but they need to be cut and carrying the whole time, Stuart. So while there are seasons, it seems to me as if there, um, there isn't much emphasis on it because they'll be feeding them by hand anyway, irrespective of when they calve. Similar to what you see on the continent, on the continental Europe, where there's no emphasis on seasonal calving as such. So the yeah. cows seem to be calving all the time, Stuart. I saw cows in milk dry at the point of calving and about to be dried off. It's at all stages. So I said there's no great emphasis on it because of the, the non-seasonal nature of milk production. And remember, Stuart, anyone that had surplus milk, a lot of it seemed to be being fed or being sold to their neighbours um, to feed their families. So it wasn't like a lot of the milk was going to a creamery or milk processors. Certainly some of it was, but an awful lot of the milk seemed to be being sold locally to their neighbours. And there was no one talking about higher fats or higher proteins. The only milk quality test that seems to be going on is the milk that's being sold to the milk processors. And what they're testing for when that milk comes in is they're testing for to make sure there's no added water in it. There, weren't, and there was no emphasis on fat or protein at all in, in the milk that they're selling. But I suppose in reality, George, that's kind of going back to where we started ourselves, maybe like, I mean, very much of what my father talked about as a child. Yeah, the, the added water and just checking that there was no dirt in the milk, basically, was the, the main thing, really. When it came then short to um, a kind of breeding the cows and AI and all that kind of stuff, there seemed to be a fair bit of AI being used because the herds are small. I suppose they can't really justify a stock bull. Hmm. So um, there's two trains of thought then about what you should be using on the cows. Some farmers are were using imported AI. And there's big talks about the high milk yields you can achieve with the uh, imported semen. It was coming from Canada and the US mostly. It's all talk about high yielding bulls and all that kind of stuff. It, it, I, I was trying to explain to him, it, it reminded me of trying to drive a Ferrari on a bog road. Uh, if the quality of the diet is poor, you're just not going to get the, the yield out of it. No more than if you're driving a Ferrari on a bog road, you're not going to get the, the speed out of that because the, the, the terrain is too poor. Yeah, so they were creating the potential but not going to be able to actually give it, it all like, an yeah. unless they bring the the forage in tandem with them in t- forage quality up in tandem with the genetics that they're breeding and so for as much for for every one straw of, of us or canadian hosting that was being used was another straw of national or native genetics being used to try and breed a different type of cow that was less um less forage uh, reliant, less forage quality reliant. And to be honest with you, some of the best cows I saw were probably crossbred Frisian Holsteins being managed reasonably well in some of the places. Uh, so the AI technicians are kind of like freelance uh, AI men. They buy the semen, they buy it from wholesalers, and then they're selling it on uh, to local farmers. 
So it's a kind of a non-seasonal thing. So he's he's never there's never a peak of AI. Remember I was saying to Stuart mm. that he didn't seem to be terribly, terribly seasonal. He's AIing a cow a day. He's a motorbike and a little backpack that the AI flask is in. He's buying a few straws at a time and selling them on to the farmers, whatever bowl they want. Or they're buying it through him. He's doing the AI and uh, he's going all the year round, 365 days of the year, uh, 30 straws a month is why he's inseminating. And in his catchment, there's about uh, two and a half thousand cows in the area that he was working in. So obviously around a thousand farms are will be his target group. But he's not the only AI tech in that area as well. There's other AI techs working privately as well that are servicing cows in his area. And then George, you started at the start there saying about the challenges around the water. Um, James uh, Hennessy, as you said, is kind of involved in those groups. And basically, like we'd be talking about water, Patrick, going, we'd be talking about water systems and so forth here. These people actually needed to create a source of water almost for their, for their stock. So will you just explain what they were doing there? Yeah, yeah. One of the guys who visited Stuart is a guy called Bernard. And Bernard had two cows. And uh, th- there's no running water, there's no electricity on his farm. Okay, So when the water runs out, any bit of water that's around the place dries up, and it will dry between December and March, it, he'll go dry. What to do then is, and it, it's traditionally the wife that bring the cows to water, the cows are walked on his farm, are walked five kilometres per day from the farmstead down to a local river in, in a common land to drink. And she's, she's to do it every day until the rains come again to get a bit of water. So what he's done is he's built a 100,000 litre pond on his farm. And on, on, in the pond, they're going to collect next, uh, in the next rainy season, they'll collect the rainwater that comes off the road or washes off the road in his pond. And that will be used then as a water source for his cows during the coming dry season. So they won't have to walk the cows uh, five kilometres a day each way to the water source down the road, a kind of a, a river that never dries up. So that's the level they're at. Is there a risk to them doing that then in terms of the quality of the water that they're going to have for the animals as well, I wonder, is there? What they do, Stuart, is they're going to filter the water before they give it to the cows. They have a kind of a filter system in place. Okay. Uh, it's part of the package. And where the package comes from is they, they're, they have one of the other pro- projects that James Hennessy of development Pomoja is involved with is he, he has savings groups going. So the savings groups are they're saving maybe 400 shillings a month, but four three fifty is what they're saving. But when they get a track record in and have a few euro in the kitty in their savings group, and in his in Bernard's group, for example, there are 16 families involved in the group. So when they when they save a certain amount of money, they can borrow for every say three thousand shillings that they have put into the savings group, they can borrow up to 10,000 shillings as a result of that. Now, I thought the interest rate was high. The interest rate was running around 10%, and they like to have the savings paid off within about a year and a half or two years. But he's borrowed, Bernard has borrowed, to put a liner in. Development Pomoja is, is, is the backer for the savings group. He's borrowed to put a liner in. The liner is coming at the moment. Development Pomoja has paid for an engineer to come out and assess the most suitable site on his farm for that liner. And the hole has already been dug for the where the liner is going to go. So the engineer has been out, the spot has been picked, and the hole has been dug. And how the hole was dug was Bernard himself and three of his neighbours got together and dug the hole by hand over the course of a month. So it took a month to dig the hole. 
they've now got the liner. The liner, I should say, has just gone in, rather, and they're waiting now for rains to fill the pond and to make a big difference to their life, their lives. Now, the next thing Bernard is going to do is he's going to sell the two cows that he has because they're of low-grade um, native breed because he has four children and the cows in milk haven't enough milk even for his own children. So he's going to sell those cows and buy a slightly better cow now that he's secured a water supply. With the water, he'll be able to uh, water his cows and he'll have some water left over to irrigate or to put water on some of the crops that he's growing to feed the cows. And that, that'll get him off with, a, with better quality cows. He'll uh, be able to feed his family and he'll have some surplus milk then for sale to his neighbours as well. Okay, so uh, I suppose the advantages of a dry season is if you dig a hole in the ground, it's not going to be full of water the following morning when you come out to it like it could be here. The savings group that uh, Bernard started with, Stuart, was a called a merry, merry-go-round group. It had seven original members. Each paid in 500 Kenyan shillings. That's about €4.50 Euro and 50 cent, every second Sunday to buy bulk foods for their household. So this was seven women got together and they were, they were buying in bulk to cut down the cost. And that was for the seven households. So members thought it was taking too long to save by themselves. So they established a women's table banking group. In this group, you can borrow what the group has saved. It's called what's on the table. So there's no credit as such. It's, it's borrowing from within the group, whatever, whatever resources they have. Then one of the members heard about the development promotion savings group from her mother. And the system, this system allows uh, members to borrow on the strength of the savings track record. So they, in addition to the original seven, they had an additional five members. And now they've taken on four members, including Bernard. And it's allowed them to have a bigger pool of savings. And because they're linked in through the development Pomoja charity, they can, they can borrow on, this, on, on the strength of credit as well. And when you talk to James Hennessy of development Pomoja, what James will tell you is, James will tell you that the um, because you're borrowing from your neighbours, no one wants to let your neighbours down. So their their loss or, or their default on it is absolutely minimal, and it's going from strength to strength. It was very, it was a very interesting uh, visit to that the discussion group to hear how the group worked. It was uh, very very interesting, you know. So is it very um very kind of short term borrowing in that sense if the money has to be back on the table for other people in the group to use it and on, before they got involved with the DP we'll say there where they were going to supply or be able to access extra money through that like did it limit it a small bit the fact that they was they could only use what was on the table as you say, as you described it I wonder yeah the the strength of the the strength of the development promoter group is that uh, working through that savings group is that it gives them a lot more access to a lot more credit. But, but because the, the, you know, they're relatively poor people, um, Stuart, they're all anxious to pay back uh, borrowing really quickly. So they're, they're inclined to pay it back within a year, 18 months if they can at all. And the interest rate is pretty high as well, but at least it's given them access to credit. One of the, one of the things that really struck me was the strength and power of the women in, in the area. They were fantastic people. And women even when they're farming, and a lot of them are doing the farming, I think 45% of the survey group that Michael O'Loughlin, our master student, has surveyed were actually women. But men hold tenure to the land. Traditionally, men own the land. So even though the women are doing all the farming, it's a man, a, man, a relative or a husband, that actually owns the land. And the, the credit institutions, until development Moja came along, they won't give them women access to credit 
because they have no land tenure. Okay. So they, one of the attractive features of development promotion is that it gives the women the opportunity to do the borrowing to improve their lives and that of their families and not just allow that access to stay with the men. Access to credit is one of the factors that my father always said makes a huge difference uh, to how people can farm and how they can better themselves. Is it fair to ask then what were the guys doing if the women were doing all the farming? I don't know, sure. There's a survey in the area a few years ago and uh, on average the the male men work uh, four hours a day in that particular area and the women work 16 hours a day. Okay, so George, I suppose that's a, an interesting and a whistle-stop tour of, of, of your trip to Kenya. I suppose, what did you, in terms of your learnings from it, or we'll say what, as I said at the very outset, were very very much used to high-level agricultural performance here at home, obviously. Um, we'll say, is it a, would you class it as a, an eye-opening experience? Would you class it as a kind of a, a, a check for yourself to, to realise that, okay, as good as we are, there's, there's people that are uh, worse off, I suppose, and that we should be aware of that all the time, or a reality check, I suppose, is the term I was looking for there. Or what would you, what would you, sum, how would you sum it up? I've been talking to people on and off over the years about their experiences abroad, and I wasn't too shocked or it didn't give me too much of a fright or anything like that. We don't realise how good we have it in Ireland. We, we have a great country. Uh, we give up with the rain, but God, the rain is important. Hmm. Um, the power of you know good extension or good advisory work uh, is really, really still pays dividends. It's the same in Ireland. It's the same abroad. You can see people who engage and actively work with the advisory with their advisory services. They, re- they really do make um, do make more progress. And I suppose from a, a forage quality perspective, I suppose the thing that came out is producing good quality forage is really important to feed cows, not just in Africa, but, but maybe also in Ireland as well. Very good. Lovely country, wonderful people. Thanks for coming on, George. I appreciate your time. No matter, Stuart, you're welcome. That's all for this week's episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And my thanks to George Ramsbottom for joining me on this week's show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagask.ie. I'm Stuart Childs, and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.